Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Titus, right where we left off last week. We're going to read that together responsively. We'll have that on the screen there where you can read it. We put that up there so we each can read together at the same translation, but you can follow along later as we go in whatever translation you happen to have. But let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read the first and then we'll alternate. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, having read your word, we ask that you teach us its understanding, its meaning, so that we may be obedient in what ways that it calls for our change. We thank you again for our time together here in this room. For your glory and honor, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, we follow along with our study. Last week was an introduction, and this week we pick up off, uh, how do we put it? We built the footer. So now we begin to lay our foundation on the footer, which was our, our introduction. And what we've just read here, Paul's saying, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So Titus, the recipient of this book, uh, was deliberately left behind on this island, which we're going to learn was a rough place. And this commission that he was given, his assignment that is spelled out for us in this little book, likely, really no doubt, was, was laid out and planned between him and Paul sometime prior to this. But just so anybody that came along would say, okay, um, so you just decided to do this on your own? This is what you heard Paul wanted? No, this is in an official document to be circulated among these small house churches, just so everybody has it and can refer back to it. But this writing is an official type of way for them to understand all these things. And his assignment to put what remained in order. Titus' task was clear. That was to straighten out what was left unfinished. That's what he had been directed to do. Now those words there, pending on your translation, it might read put into order. It might say set straight. But that comes from the Greek word ortho. And it's where we get the term orthodontics or orthopedic surgery. That's where we fix broken bones or crooked teeth. 
straighten them out and put them in order. There's an order for your teeth. There's an order for your bones. And the process of putting them into order goes back to a very old word in the Greek language, ortho, which is the same one that's used here. So straighten it out is what Paul is telling Titus to do and in the company of those who would read this letter. And when you get to the next part of it, as I directed you, that's an interesting word too. It starts with a verb that means to order or to set in place, to establish. That's what the word means. But it has a prefix along with it that means thoroughly. So if you were to read that very literally, it means Titus, fix it, fix it good, and fix it the right way. So there's no misunderstanding as to exactly how Paul wanted this done. If you ever remember your father, perhaps, leaving for the day, having given you a list of chores to do, and over time you learn how that is to be done. There's a right way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. And this is the right way that Paul is referring to here. So set it in order. The things that I was not able to do myself, that's what he's there to do. So what is it that Paul is saying needs to be fixed, needs to be fixed right, and needs to be fixed really good? Well, specifically, it had to do with the appointment of elders in every town. We'll get into the, what those words mean, but the word elder uh, in our modern culture of Christianity is uh, almost the same thing as saying pastor, teaching pastors, pastoral staff, some churches refer to their, uh, their governing body perhaps as elders, maybe by deacons. And there's different ways of doing that. And all of them can work really well so long as the men who are involved are men of integrity and are qualified to do what they do. That's what this passage is about. When there's no integrity or accountability or character... It doesn't matter what model of government your church has. It's probably not going to be good. That's the point of this passage. So last week when we talked about how this little short book of Titus is laid out, three chapters, chapter 1 having to do with leadership. That's what we start today. Chapter 2 having to do with membership. That's about the whole family. And then the third chapter how the leadership and the membership go about witnessing to the lost world around them. That's uh, the three chapters of this book. But we'll find out as we get into what we study today that there's a reason why leadership is discussed first. And that is because if the leadership is not right, everything else under it is going to suffer. And we really shouldn't be surprised by that. We don't need to look any further than the our own homes that we live in. God gave us a design for how those homes are to be run. Parents not only are put in the position of leaders within their home under the headship of Christ. We know this from our New Testaments. And there's a certain authority that goes along with it to be able to lead their children. And when it all works the way it's been laid out in Scripture, it works beautifully. But when it's not ordered that way, Sometimes it can be a pitiful mess. And you might know someone like that. We won't talk about it now. Paul's going to talk about that later. But we understand that there is a certain 
structure with authority. And when it's there, it works. If that's the case in the home, that's the case in the church. Remember from last week, God not only ordained the home and ordained the church, designed them both, He gets to say how both of them are structured. And if we obey those rules, things work the way He designed them to work. If we say, I don't like the rules, then it's basically like saying, I'll do this on my own. And when you do that on your own, you are on your own. So your mileage not might vary, it will vary, just depending on how things shake out. I don't want to be on my own. I've done enough of that to know that it doesn't work very well. And we'll get into some of those things as we get into chapter 2. But God created the home, the church, He gets to say how it works. And most of the unsolved problems within the church can usually be traced back to defective leadership. That's probably a good banner to park most of the information in this sermon. As such, a proper understanding and obedience of this passage cannot be overstated as far as its importance in a church like this or any. Now we learn in our Bibles, and this is some technical information, that within at least 15 years after the resurrection of Christ, we see a clear model of leadership within the early church. That's not a long time, but within 15 years or so of Christ having left this earth, we see churches gathering together under a certain structure. And that structure is going to be on display in the passage we just read. Paul uses two words in this chapter uh, interchangeably when referring to this leadership model. Uh, Both words, presbyteros, and episkopos, those are the Greek words. You know any other words that sound like that? Like Presbyterian and Episcopal? Well, that's where they get these terms from. And it has to do with the way they structure their government and their church and who's leading who. It's translated into English, the word elder. And I'd almost be willing to make a bet that any translation you've got this morning in verse uh, 5 there, the term is elder. And then later, it might be translated as bishop. Sometimes the, the second word is, is translated separately. But as far as Paul's concerned in this context, he's really using them interchangeably. Uh, the slight difference between the two that's worth noting is that presbyteros, uh, which is elder or overseer, uh, highlights the person, where episkopos stresses the function. So you could put it another way. The former simply means an older man who's experienced. People look up to him. While the latter means an overseer. He's actually put in charge of certain responsibilities that he oversees. That stresses the function. And then if you were to go to 1 Peter 5, you could round out the three different words we use to describe elders or pastors. And that has to do with shepherding. So you could draw out the picture of overseeing, shepherding, teaching the church. But here's the point I want to make after mentioning all those things. In each case, whether you're reading here in Titus or anywhere else in the New Testament, the emphasis on the leading or on the oversight or on the shepherding, doesn't matter which of those three words you use, in each case... The emphasis is always that the leading is being done by the crook of God's word. The shepherd's crook. 
that's, that's the tool. The, the real leadership comes not from what's between the ears of the man doing the leading, but the contents of what has already been said in God's Word. It's always by the book. These men stand under the authority of the book. And we'll come back to that later, but don't miss that point. So that's why a congregation should always be encouraged. This congregation included, when your pastor or whoever's teaching encourages you to look at it for yourself. Now you see this. You're you're thinking people. Think this through. I want you to look as we read through. We'll read it all together to make sure I'm not sticking anything in extra and calling it Scripture. Or removing anything that I didn't like. It's always by the book. And that should encourage you and make you rest easy when studying God's Word. As opposed to someone saying, and they never say this in words, they just do it in their actions. They'll, they'll, they'll mention a couple of verses, and they'll leave that like an abandoned baby on someone else's porch. While they go on about what they think is great for the next 45 minutes or so, but you leave the room knowing no more about that verse than you did when you walked in. We can do better than that. And the right leadership, I'm convinced, not only understands it, but endeavors to make that their absolute aim. So here's the bottom line early. We'll read the last verse first. This is where we're headed. The elder in verse 5 and then the overseer, which might be translated bishop in verse 7, are the same two people in verse 9 who are caring for the church by teaching the church. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy words as taught they were taught to him so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, that's teaching himself, and also rebuke those who contradict it such that he can explain to his, his, his members not only the real McCoy but the fake and the phony. The counterfeit. He's able to draw a line of distinction between the two. After all the requirements that we're going to read this morning are met, the elder is primarily a teacher. Leadership in the church is a teaching job. That's what it basically boils down to. And all the qualifications are to make sure that what he's teaching, he's actually living. Because what good would it do you to have a man who could teach you the Bible but did not live according to it? That's what we'd call a hypocrite, the capital H, even though the church is full of hypocrites with little H's because we're all saved by grace. But the Word of God must be our our line in the sand, our guide. The ultimate expression of care on the part of the elder, and this is how you'll know uh, your pastor, pastoral staff, their love language to you when you know they're caring for you, the way they know best is when they're apt to teach and they teach you well and put in the hours to do it well so that the people might be fed the word of God so that they can live by the word of God grow by the word of God and in turn teach their children the word of God so if you're part of a church where the leadership studies hard and teaches well then you have something to work with when you go home as a supplement to your own devotions and your own shot, work, attempt at actually being what God's called you to be. So let me give you three points here. And these really aren't points. 
They're just a way to organize some of our thought. This passage today, as we were reading through it, we got to that long list of, of qualifications, requirements of a pastor. This type of passage doesn't actually fit into a sermon with nice points because that's not the way that it's, it's arranged. It's arranged as a list. So if we study it, we just go through the list. But if you look through the list, there are at least three different types or categories you can put the listing in. And I'll give them to you real quick, but they're not the main part of the message. As far as church leadership in this passage goes, they must be at least three things. One, it needs to be local. Did you notice how he said, appoint elders in every town? It really makes sense that they're local people. And the reason why that's important is because local leaders are accountable to the people they're leading. If they're kind of uh, imported, they drive back and forth for a real long time or are very loosely embedded in the, the group they're leading, the accountability doesn't work very well. So these basically a way of saying homegrown. Now, I know you just imported a guy from Virginia. But I'm telling you, we were held hostage in Virginia for 32 years. We were born here. I can't wait to actually get the license plate with an airplane on it like we used to have when we were little. Um, and I always wondered, how far can you take a man from where he was born and raised before his ability to actually communicate with people is, is, is affected by that? I don't think I'd do very good out on the West Coast. I don't think they would get me, and I wouldn't get them. But I think there's something to say here for this. Homegrown leadership is the best, that you grow up yourself teaching the next generation of leaders. It needs to be multiple as well. That's the second one. We cannot get around the fact that this is a plural word, elders. It's more than one. Some refer to this as a plurality of elders, model. Uh, you have more than one on your pastoral staff. That's important because you never want one man calling all the shots. He might decide he can call all the shots. And you need more eyes and angles and, and gifts uh, together to do this right. It seems as if that's the way God had designed it. And then third, which is what we spend all our time on this morning, need to be qualified. There are certain requirements for the men who will do these things for the people they serve. So the exercise of power and style of government may different, differ as long as the leaders are rooted within the church. Power and responsibility are shared by several rather than concentrated in one. And the qualifications of leaders are recognized by those who are leading. So from here out, we have no points. So later today, when someone asks you, how was church? How was the message? You can tell them it was a pointless message. <laughs> At least after the introduction, right? You will notice if you pay attention to these that we're about to look at, that as far as these qualifications go, most of them involve character. Very few of them have to do with any knowledge or skill. Now, not that knowledge or skill is diminished in this passage, but the emphasis is on character, his heart, his integrity, which is why it makes it easier to raise up the next generation working on character and conviction long before you ever expect the skill sets to show up. 
They can be learned. You can study and get smarter. And you can exercise certain gifts that God has given you. I would hope that each time I speak, I get better at it. There's a whole host of older ladies that used to encourage me all the time and say, your sermon's really good. You're getting a lot better. (laughs) And one time, this was one of dad's. He said he, he had this one lady come all the time and say, that was just such a warm message. And he said, I thought... That was nice to ask somebody. What do you think that means? They said, I'm probably pretty sure that means not so hot. (laughs) But she's got to find a way to make you feel good about it. But if you will focus on the leadership of your church being men of integrity, qualified by their, their, their character first rather than their skill or knowledge, you can work on that later. That seems to be the emphasis. And number one is, is the one banner over them all. If anyone is above reproach. This is pretty straightforward. Must be blameless without accusation. That marks the basic qualification demanding an irreproachable reputation in the community. We talked about this uh, Wednesday evening. It's kind of the equivalent of a Teflon coating doesn't mean they're perfect, but if somebody wants to come and say that so-and-so has all these problems in the community, they say, we know them, and they don't, that doesn't stick to them. But that requires a certain public uh, reputation that's either there or it's not, and it can't be faked. Uh, John Calvin paraphrased this idea as not marred by disgrace. You can't have any controversy. There, there must not be a long list of drama following this man like a trailer behind his, his, his truck. His general quality character frames the rest and can be divided into several categories. You'll see as we look. These categories either have to do with his home or his public life or his church life. But he's a man that has a, a public uh, viewing in each of those areas. Now, we want to make sure that we don't take this further than it's supposed to be taken either. We don't want to put words in Paul's mouth. He did not use the word perfect or faultless. And if you listen to him refer to himself, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. So we know that he's not talking about perfection. But then again, this man must be able to withstand the public litmus test. We want to watch ourselves so as not to take a wooden approach. But, but hear him out. Above reproach is the very first requirement. Now, as far as that wooden approach, we get a good exercise of that in the next phrase, which is the second qualification, the husband of one wife. Now, a wooden repro- approach to this, may, maybe making it say more than it should, is that Paul himself, the author of the book, would be disqualified because he is single. He's not the husband of any wife. So when it says it must be the husband of one wife, make sure we understand what he means by that. Uh, What about a widowed man who had a wife but not anymore? Again, not faultless or perfect. And think about Crete. A good number of men had multiple wives. Now, it's hard to be the husband of one wife if you have two. 
So I think that's clear that, that that's not at all what he means. But this one woman man idea, I've heard it used by commentators over and over again. That seems to encapsulate the idea that most agree with. A one woman man. Almost sounds like a country western song. But it would carry with it the idea of a commitment that's not only inside his heart, but the whole community around him knows that there's no other woman for that man than his wife. It's not a one woman at a time. You know, I'll be faithful to her until I don't want to, and I'll get me a new one, but I promise that what I promised her, I'll promise to the next one. Uh, and you, they might have, you know, one every month. That's not it. He is setting the standard for the man who is married to the woman to whom he's married. And then you get into the business of what took place before someone was saved and understood grace to begin with. The most basic level this describes a man who is married to one woman and continues to live in fidelity and harmony with the same woman. This area of marriage and sexuality, he is to be unimpeachable, irreproachable, above reproach. If not, that would be a deal breaker. Because if he's unfaithful in something so close to him, how's he going to be faithful to those that are less close to him? This is a good litmus test. And then one that's very closely associated with it. These both have to do with the home, his wife, and then with his children. And his children are to be believers. And some would say, does this mean they have to be saved too? That'd be a tough call because we don't know at what stage they would come to the age of accountability. And how do we know that they're not saved just to make their daddy who's a preacher satisfied? We can't see inside the heart. Nobody can do that, but God can. But they must be able to understand, articulate, abide under, and look as if they actually buy the stuff their daddy's selling. Does that make sense? If, 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 if he's in the business of, of, of Jesus, but his kids aren't buying, might be a problem in the home. Describes a man who uh, has effectively accomplished in his home what we hope he will facilitate in the church. Does it mean that anyone who served as an elder or pastor can't have rowdy kids? I had to give one of mine a look while ago while we were singing. <laughs> and he didn't even know this was coming up. Does that mean I'm disqualified? I hope not. They're little now. When they grow up, you'll be able to tell whether or not I'm real or a fake based on whether or not it's real to them and they come to it easily or if the whole time I've left a bad taste in their mouth that for some reason, even what I think is most important is more important than they are to me. Sometimes that can be the way that it's perceived. What about a wayward kid? What about a rebellious phase? They'd have thrown my father out if they charged him for each time his three. We had four children, but one is, is special needs, and that doesn't count in that area. But the rest of us uh, took our turns playing the fool temporarily. But Dad raised us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He, he taught us, and when we were old, we didn't depart from it. We're all happily married now. And it seems as if everything is just exactly as it should be. But it might not seem fair that a man should be judged by how his children are raised or reared. But in this job, it looks as if Paul is saying, you better watch close there. 
And then he adds this, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Open to the charge means if somebody can say that pastor's kids are debauched and somebody says, you know what, I think you're right. That's when he says the line has been crossed. But up until then, yes, we're imperfect parents raising imperfect children who all need the blood of Jesus Christ or we're going to spend eternity without him. It's by grace and grace alone. But in the business of grace, we've got to have a target to shoot for. And we need to see that grace on display in the leadership's family. So this open to the charge of debauchery, insubordination, those Greek words are very nuanced. And there's, there's other things that are attached in there too that could uh, describe the, the home uh, it, it calls for a man whose life is not known to be chaotic, disorderly, wasteful, or otherwise filled with drama. That's tied in there too. Ever met anybody like that? Don't say if you did. Not now. But we're not really talking about morality in here, but, but here's the question to ask. If his life is one long drama train, how much time and how many nerves does he have available to actually lead and, and guide a church family if his is taking up all his time so i'd written down does this mean if if the guy hits a deer bounces a check and sets his lawnmower on fire all in one week is he to be marked off the list depends on what last week looked like and the next week after because it does seem that, that troubles just seem to fall. What that is is indicative of a life that's not ordered. These are all things that could add up to yellow flags, orange flags, maybe a flat-out red flag. But I think Paul's being very generous in the way he's helping us see what, what fits for leadership material and what does not. Restated here, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So here's kind of a summary. A man's reckless or even casual approach to his marital vows or his inability to train and govern his children would place in question his ability to train and govern the church. What I am in my house, what I am with my wife, what I am with my children, irrespective of what it looks like from the outside, that area is the proving ground, the foundation for this area. It's connected. Sometimes I don't feel like that's fair until I read Scripture. And if it sounds like it's hard and difficult, it's supposed to be. And that's why at the end we're going to read a verse where it says that those men are going to be held to a higher accountability and responsibility because of the stakes which are involved. Growing up in a pastor's home, I had the opportunity to watch my father, the pastor of the tabernacle, like no one else had the option to do. I knew whether he was a fake or a phony. I knew if what he preached, he actually practiced. And those children on the front row there get the same opportunity. And uh, it's, it's a big deal. It's some days... Um, quite the reality check but again there's grace for that and another reason why I and your pastoral staff your deacons your Sunday school teachers your fathers and your mothers need your prayer to do what God had given them to do now here's five positive and six negative qualifications we picked up the pace a moment ago now we're going to hit this double time 
He must not be arrogant. So first things he's not to do, then the the next things are things he should do. He can't be arrogant. Overbearing, arrogantly disregarding the interests of others in order to please himself is not what you're looking for. A hot-headed person will speak and act without thinking. Their, Their mouths run faster than their brains do. You want that reversed. You want your brain running faster than your mouth so it can act censor if necessary. Midstream, oftentimes. That's uh, very much related to the second one, quick-tempered, which means he readily yields to anger. And for pastoral work, that demands patience. Watch my father struggle with this. You try to get ducks in a row and somebody comes and you know, kills one of the ducks or steals one of the ducks or adds a few of their own ducks and they're not in a row and it, it, it requires patience. But so does living life for that matter. But this is living life in community and on display. So just for the sake of optics, this man needs patience. It's tough sometimes. He can't be a drunkard. Literally, that means alongside of wine and the idea of being addicted to its use. So he must not be an alcoholic. That would be a deal breaker. Um, But shouldn't be restricted only to alcoholism. There's other substances that could produce the same distraction or problems for a leader within a church. Um, But this idea would include... Those who fail to recognize their limits regarding alcohol. There's a line. And the sin is to be drunk, out of control. God expects you to be within control of your faculties. Um, So if you find your leadership down at the watering hole down here, having tied a couple on, couldn't need to talk about that. Um... Morally speaking, the issue comes with this. I heard Johnny Hunt say this. That stuff relaxes your morals. To where things you wouldn't ordinarily do, it's not that big a deal once you've surrendered control. This is the wisdom approach to alcohol. Some would say absolutely not a drop ever. Well, that's wisdom too, but that's not in Scripture. Because the man writing this, including Jesus... But there's that line. And what is it with Americans that just have a tough time with a line? Right? We want to go way over the line. And I can go way over the line better than you can go way over the line. As Christians, we're better than that as far as your leadership. It's, it's, a, it's something you must watch very carefully. John Stott said, Not all are total abstainers, but all are called to moderation and temperance. This is just a further test as the control of the Spirit of God on this man or whether or not he's out of control. He can't be violent. That means a striker ready to assail an opponent with words or fists. Both are quite damaging. Think of this list so far. This must have been a rough place in Crete. I don't know if it's any different than where we are right now. And you might not think that fighting within the church would be something the church would need to worry about. But a man I worked for with several years at the Tabernacle had a smaller church out in Caswell County, North Carolina, where after a deacon's meeting, he actually had one of the deacons ask him to step out into the parking lot to finish what they couldn't do inside. And it didn't happen. 
But it, as far as the fist fight, but that was actually said. And I always thought, that's crazy. But if we're thinking of a context like this, and I've been around some folks. It's, it's not my temperament. I only got in one fight in my whole life, and I lost it. And it was because the guy was mistreating my sister. But I, you got to do something. But I'm, I'm just not, I'm not fighting material. <laughs> what I was given that I'm better at are words. And I have to watch those. Because sometimes I think they can do more damage. Greedy for gain, using his office for profit, willing to procure it by disgraceful means, or tempted to use his office for unfair financial advantage. You don't want that. Those are the five no's. These are the six yeses or musts. He must be hospitable, literally a lover of strangers who welcomes those who are different and easily overcomes the natural tension that exists between them because of their differences. The emphasis here from the Greek seems to be the differences. We seem to get along swell with people that are like us. It's how well do you get along with people that are different than you? Or, uh, you know, the least of these. That's key. This man needs to do that. Now, his, his house doesn't have to be a revolving door. He doesn't have to position himself as the doormat. But he needs to be able to to be seen and see people. This, this is one of those things I work on. Um, I'd be happy fishing alone. Some people can't fish without somebody. I see this in my children's life. One of my boys is happy to be alone just like his daddy. The other one, he likes to have a party. And you can't party alone. You've got to have somebody with you to have a party. So he'll pester the others who are doing their thing, reading or building or whatever. Let's have a party. We're all different, so we must all be hospitable. And that's important. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling is First Peter 4, 9. Dad was, was okay at hospitality, uh, and nobody ever heard the grumbling before the door opened sometimes. But I remember he'd come home. I've been at the office all day. Doorbell's ringing again. Well, this is a high calling, and sometimes that's just part of it. And sometimes... Maybe it's a problem on the other side. I need a gatekeeper, electric fence, something like that. I'm kidding. A lover of good. Qualified elder is an ally and zealous supporter of the good, including men and deeds. A lover of good. He knows what's good and he talks about what's good and he compliments what's good. And he's an encourager in what's good about what's going on in the family. Um, and he must walk point here. It's often a climate or an attitude that a group will have. And if he's always finding what's wrong with everything, in time, everybody will be finding what's wrong with everything. So he must walk point here. He's also self-controlled. And we'll talk a lot about this in, in uh, chapter 2. The elder must be in control of his mind, his emotions, so that he can act ra rationally and discreetly. The good, plain, simple word for this is sensible. Good head on his shoulders. Where you're not worried about how to approach him and ask him something and whether or not he's going to pop when you ask him. Now, the man's cool because he's self-controlled. He's upright. He's just, conforming his conduct to right standards. A just man seeks fairness for others, but rarely for himself. That's a good line. 
The man's usually worried more about what's fair for somebody else than what's fair for himself. But he has a good definition of what fair is because he's, he's upright and just. Decision-making, the first question to ask as far as that idea is what is the right thing to do? Not the expedient thing to do, the easy thing to do, or the popular thing to do. What is the right thing to do? He needs to be able to get that one right on a regular basis. He's to be holy, denoting personal piety. He's reverent, like we talked about two weeks ago with the people who responded reverently to the Word of God. If upright has to do with our dealings with others, holy has to do with our dealings with God. And then finally, he needs to be disciplined, having the inner strength that enable him to control his bodily appetites and passions. Some people are absolute slaves to the urges in their brains and their bodies. And this man needs to be disciplined to be able to say no to those things for the purpose of being the best he can be for you. Without self-control, a man is an easy target for the devil too. That opens him wide. A man without self-control is like a city broken and left without walls, says Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight. Now, it's been said already that the leadership of the church should walk point in the parade of discipline, character, being above reproach. And whether it's following through on a commitment or showing up on time for an appointment or what they put into their bodies by way of eating and drinking, Paul has covered all of this. Or the way in which they spend their time away or even neglecting the necessity of spending time away. This is a huge challenge. But let's end where we started. All of this is for verse 9. If you get all those together, then you've got a pretty good shot at holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So that's really maybe the most important requirement. Holding fast the faithful word. It refers to men who base their lives on sound doctrine as it was taught by trustworthy authority. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. So do they hold it firmly? Are they firmly held by it? Do they know the truth? Do they live the truth? Do they teach the truth? Can they defend the truth against a clever attack that looks more shiny than that old stale tradition he's had and continues to live? And this is why Hebrews thirteen seventeen is what we conclude on. And this is, this is hard for me to say for myself, and part of this has been anyway. I mean... You've called me your pastor, called me here. A short little piece in the bulletin is my attempt to, to thank you uh, for what has been an absolute honor thus far. And I'm looking forward to much time in the future to see the rest of the story that God has planned. But I've just been here three weeks. Talk about the qualifications of a pastor is somewhat awkward. But as far as the men who've been here for some time, 
your pastoral staff. I can say this as wholeheartedly as, as I possibly can. Listen to this verse. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. They're going to stand accountable for the way they treat you, teach you, lead you, guide you. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. This basically just says, be their cheerleader. Make them proud to serve you. Be good students. Be children their parents delight in. And what you'll see is an extra second wind of, 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 of energy that the Holy Spirit will give them and put behind them and perhaps see things the likes of which this church has never seen before by God's grace and for His glory, not our own. But back, back to the conclusion last week. Are, are, we, are we going to allow the Word to dictate what we do here? Are we going to understand and obey it? Are we going to hold a very high standard for what qualifies as leadership in this place? And if so, be proud of that leadership and serve under them proudly. And cheerlead them all the way. With that said, let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And as always, we seek to understand it so that you can give us the strength to obey it. Bless this church for its tradition of holding a high standard, especially for the requirements of the role of teaching, be it from the pulpit or the Sunday school classroom or the operations of the church during the week. Lord, I'm convinced that you've blessed this church for reasons such as that. Bless this congregation. And Lord, I ask that you give them this week opportunities to live out what we've heard in one way or another and for your glory and your honor. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, we um, stand here today with open hearts and minds and thankful for the truth of your word that you've given us and your servant. Challenge us to take it and live it in the week to come. We lift up those um, that lost ones during the week. We welcome new life. We also pray for Paul and Penny Hessman, Association of Baptist World Evangelism, taking the same truth we heard today and delivering to the people in Durban, South Africa. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.